Hi, I'm Piper. And I'm Erin. Welcome to Off the Tracks Podcast, where we explore what it means to do law differently. This episode marks the beginning of our series on law school debt. We are so excited to begin having these conversations about the short-term and long-term costs of a legal education. Throughout this series, we will be speaking with lawyers who have had a variety of diverse experiences with law school debt. We were inspired to start this series because we've always spoken so candidly with each other about our own debt. When Aaron and I found out that we carried similar debt loads, it was instantly comforting to have a friend to confide in about money and the emotional toll this massive debt carries. As we embark on this new series, we will be open and vulnerable about our own experiences with law school debt, and we are grateful to our guests for sharing their stories with us and all of you. Today, we're joined by Carly Lyons. Carly is currently in the Law Society of Ontario licensing process and will be called to the bar in June of 2021. She is the founder and director of Legal Listening, a legal audio podcast. So welcome, Carly. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you tell us a bit about your journey in law and what led you to decide on law school? Yeah. So uh, I like to say I'm an old because I worked pretty extensively between sort of when I finished my undergrad and graduate degree and then when I went to law school. So I did my undergrad in 06 to 2010, which like super dates me because I'm pretty sure our lovely podcast hosts were probably in high school during some of those years or younger. Um, (laughs) So then after I did my undergrad, I did a master's degree in medieval studies at U of T, which was, I thought the coolest thing on earth and turns out not terribly useful in the real world. And then uh, I kind of bounced around. I worked lots of service jobs. And then I ended up working at a law firm where I'm from back in Niagara. And I sort of went from just being like a temporary file clerk to I was running their insurance department at a boutique uh, personal injury firm within five years. And so I really liked it. And uh, one day I was like, you know, it makes no sense that I'm doing 75% of the stuff here and only making 15% of the money. This is silly. I'm going to go to law school. So my firm was super supportive and they all helped me write letters to go. And, you know, here I am just almost, almost called. So, so close. Congrats. That's awesome. And uh, we can't wait for you to get your email one early (laughs) Saturday morning this summer. It's super exciting. (laughs) Yes. My $356 email that I will receive. (laughs) (laughs) So um, when you were deciding to go to law school, did you consider the short-term and long-term costs associated with it? I mean, it kind of sounds like you were thinking money when you were talking about, you know, the amount of labor that you were doing for the amount of um, pay that you were getting in return. But did you really kind of look at the whole picture of what it was going to cost to go to law school? And did you fully comprehend that at the time? Um, definitely not. So <laughs> I, I come from a weird sort of place, right? So I didn't pay for my undergrad because I went on a full ride athletic scholarship. So I had never applied for OSAP. Like I was completely unaware of how any of those processes worked. And then when I went to graduate school, I literally just like my parents co-signed a line of credit and I paid the line of credit back over three or four years. And it wasn't a terribly large amount of money. So it was like, I didn't, have any real idea of how OSAP worked or how these national loans worked. I really didn't know that. And then mm-hmm. I I did some research, but honestly not enough. And like I fully copped to that. Like I didn't really realize what the debt load would be coming out of it. I obviously had some idea because you know I can look up what the tuition is and stuff, but like I didn't really realize one, how much it 
sort of sneaks up on you. And two, I didn't realize that how bad the job market was on the other end in some ways. And so, you know, and to a certain extent, I think that information is like hidden from potential applicants. Um, so it's not really necessarily there if you're looking for it, especially if you don't know any lawyers in your family, which I do not. Uh, but yeah, so it's like, I thought about it, but probably, you know, I fully, fully copped to this, not as much as I should have. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think there is a lot that's hidden um, or not talked about. And I guess that's part of the reason we are so excited to be having these conversations on our debt series um, for people who are listening, whether they're just starting their law school journey or maybe they're thinking about law school. This is not to discourage anyone at all, but I think we definitely want to talk about the realities of the debt load that can be associated with law school um, and the job prospects and all, all that jazz. Because I mean, I would like to think I still would have done it knowing what I know now, um, but it would have been great to probably have a bit more information going in. Um, so Carly, I guess we're curious, um, at its height, which is maybe now or maybe not, um, how much debt do you carry um, in all forms? Yeah, so... Okay, we'll do this two ways. So first of all, in terms of school, so again, remember, I was much older when I went to school because I was 29 and I have a partner. So we were very lucky to be, and this is before the real estate market in Windsor exploded to completely unaffordable levels that we currently could not afford. But, you know, four years ago when I was applying to law school, we were lucky enough to be able to afford a house. So I have $83,000 of a mortgage, which is like a side debt from sort of the debt we're talking about now, which I know is going to sound like no money because house prices in Ontario are insane now, but it was, it seemed a lot to me then and it still seems a lot to me now. And so with school debt, I probably have, I think I had 170,000 and now I'm down to like 155 heading towards the end of articling. I was also very lucky that my Toronto articling job has let me work from home this entire time. So I've got to stay in Windsor where cost of living is much, much lower. So that has certainly helped, you know, significantly. But yeah, I'm sitting at around around 150-ish once I get my tax return in like a week. So uh, around there. Yeah. So Aaron and I also both have six-figure debt. Um, before this episode, I said, Aaron, quick, we have to go look up the exact number. I want to be so transparent. And so as of today, and this episode is going to come out in a little, in a little bit when we start the debt series in a few weeks or maybe a month or so. But, um, as of today, which is Saturday, March 20th, I owe $134,327.29. So that's a really cool number. It definitely keeps me warm at night. Um, (laughs) um, It feels really scary to say it out loud and to talk about it. Um, I know there are people with far more debt than me. There are people with less debt. But to me, that number just seems really scary. And every time I open my Scotiabank app, um, for anyone that thinks at Scotia and uses their mobile app, it says you owe, and then your exact number. So in my case, it's this amount plus whatever I have on my credit card that week. I really try consciously to keep my credit card at zero. Um, though sometimes that's not always possible. Um, and then it says you have this much money. And I remember when I was articling and really, um, really strapped for cash, 
um, it was terrifying. It would be like, you have $4,000 and you owe 130 something, something, something. Um, and that was really demoralizing to, to see every time I opened my bank account. Um, it's not much better now, but I'm definitely feeling more positive and hopeful. And I feel like I have somewhat, the keyword somewhat, established a plan as my repayment creeps up on me um, for this, this upcoming July. Yeah. And um, if you put my debt together with Piper's, we could afford a nice $300,000 home. Uh, I don't know where you would buy such a home, but, you know, potentially, um, I don't know. Maybe like a like a condo here in Winnipeg, Erin. Yeah, okay. A condo in Winnipeg, maybe. No, like a small condo, like a one-bedroom yeah. type of situation. Okay. I was going to say you're fully priced out of Windsor, so you're not buying anything here. <laughs> They've, the prices have ex- our house is worth four times what we bought it four years ago, and we've done relatively little to it. So I know it's absurd. Yeah. So and just to clarify, so all of Piper, your Scotia Bank, right? Yeah, my entire debt. I went to school out of province for both degrees, and I was very fortunate um, to have my family support my first degree. I had a partial scholarship, and my family supported the other piece of it. Um, I went to a fairly um, pricey undergraduate school uh, by Canadian standards. Um, I think tuition at the time when I went was about eight grand or like it started in the high sevens and then went up, but it was very high comparatively at the time. And I had a half tuition scholarship um, and my family paid the rest and then um, majorly contributed to my um, cost of living. Um, and I had jobs and contributed where I could, but I just carry this law school debt all from the Scotiabank line of credit. Got it. Yeah. And, um, so I have, um, about $25,425 and 40 cents on my OSAP. Um, that's a mix from undergrad and law school, but I believe in undergrad, I didn't get that much OSAP because I, again, naively did not think about the price of things and decided to go to McGill for undergrad. So I wasn't really eligible for much support there either. So I have OSAP and then I also have a 145,000 on my Scotia um, student line of credit. So I have a grand total of 170,425 and 40 cents. <laughs> so, um, and that's a mix of some undergrad debt as well. So in undergrad, um, I took out some loans from TD and CIBC. And my parents had to co-sign for those lines of credits to help pay for my living costs and tuition at McGill. And then when I went to law school, um, I was offered the 135. I mean, actually, I think it was a bit lower when we started 125. When we started law school, um, our incoming class, so Aaron and I both started law school in the fall of 2016. Our incoming class, to our knowledge, was offered 100K. um, And then it went up a couple times. So once it went up to 125, and then by the time we graduated, they upped it to 135. And I don't know the ins and outs, but I believe I've heard that since it has been upped again, 
Um, but we originally signed for a hundred and then ended up with 135. I'd also just like to jump in and say, I also didn't have a co-signer. It was just offered to me, like how someone offers you like a cookie. Um, and I just said, I love cookies and I took it. So there you go. It's honestly funny because like when I got my mortgage, cause like I found out I was getting, I found out I got into Windsor in April and then we looked right away and we bought the house in May. Cause like, I was lucky that like, you know, I had no money saved to go to law school. The money that I saved went to the house so that I would have a lower cost of living. Cause my house was only $115,000, which is insane. Cause that's not what houses cost anymore. Um, it's crazy. Uh, but location, I remember I dropped off some things to your house. I've never been inside, but I dropped off a few things to your house before and it's like such a great location and it's a sweet house from what I I love. (laughs) But yeah, so I remember when I did my mortgage stuff, like that was like completely different. Like you have to fill out all this stuff and you have to do all these credit checks and like, it's crazy. And yeah, it was a significantly large amount of paperwork to get a mortgage and my mortgage was only ever $94,000, right? Like I was given more money by Scotiabank on my student line of credit than Scotiabank gave me for my mortgage. And the mortgage (laughs) was like way more work. It was a much more involved process. I had a much better idea of like what I was signing and like the terms and everything because they have to, because there's rules around mortgage documents, right? So they actually have to show you things in a way that's not necessarily true with the line of credit. So yeah, I did... I did both processes with the same bank and it was kind of ridiculous how more informed I had to be just for them to get me to sign stuff about the mortgage than the line of credit. The line of credit, they just were like, here you go. Enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) I actually have a really funny memory from living in Windsor. And I think they didn't allow me to roll over my debt from CIBC and TD into Scotiabank until second year. So I believe I was working in Windsor that summer. And one day I went to Scotiabank and I was like, okay, can we pay out my other loans? And I really wanted my parents off of the co-signing because that felt crushing to me, knowing that someone else was responsible if I just like dropped dead, (laughs) that someone else was going to have to pay these loans for me. And so I really wanted my parents off. And I remember they were like, okay, here's a check. And I remember having this like <laughs> check for my, <laughs> for my undergrad loans was, which was probably close to like 40,000 at the time. And I had to walk down the street to go pay it off. And I was like, don't look at anyone just walk straight there. <laughs> but like, it was just so like, okay, yeah, here you go. Go pay it off and come back with the receipt. And I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. Well, it's funny because I really do think it's because like, you know, we're all laughing because we all come from like a similar background in terms of like class. And I always find it funny in law school because like you could tell the story to some people who are wonderful, hardworking, absolutely lovely people that, you know, we went to school with and they'd be like, I don't understand. That's not a lot of money because like they're just coming from a completely different world. And I've never been exposed so I have never been exposed in my, and like I went to Syracuse, which is like a ridiculously expensive private school in central New York on scholarship. I did not pay. And I was, you know, I'm surrounded by kids that are super rich and like, I never felt exposed to the kind of wealth that is around you in law school. And so for me, it was a very big adjustment, um, you know, having conversations and stuff being like, yeah, like, I don't know, that's really expensive. It's like 15 grand and someone be looking at me like, oh, you know, that's not a lot of money. And it's like, that's a very large amount of money to me and probably will be for the rest of my life just because of how I grew up. And it's weird to be, you know, like with obviously no judgment attached, it's just weird to be in a situation where other people have entirely different concepts of money than you do. 
I could not agree more. And I think sort of in the opening, that's kind of what I meant when I talked about how Aaron and I bonded over our similar um, amounts of debt. Um, I grew up very like middle, maybe upper middle class. I don't even really know how these things are classified, but I, I grew up, I never wanted for anything. I never went to bed hungry. I was so happy and comfortable and cared for. Um, and I went to do my undergraduate degree in New Brunswick, in rural New Brunswick, in a town with one traffic light. And um, people came from all over to go to my school, Mount Allison University, but it was primarily people from the Maritimes. And then you'd have a lot of people from BC, a lot from Toronto. And then I, I'm not exaggerating. I think there was at, at its height, like maybe two or three of us, uh, the whole time I was there in different years, um, that were from Manitoba. And so amongst my group of friends, I definitely fell somewhere in the middle, um, in terms of class. Um, just from what I noticed. So for example, um, when I first started my undergrad, I don't believe there was, there now is, but I don't believe there was like a Lululemon store in the Maritimes. So I had Lululemon, which you could like, was an immediate identifier as someone that like came from somewhere else. And it was like a class thing. And then my friends from Toronto, it was like the same thing. And this sounds so silly, but I always sort of felt in the middle of class. Like, um, some, some of my friends, I remember asking other friends of ours, they said, Oh, like one of your parents doesn't work like that. That concept was so, um, uncommon for, to have one parent who stayed home and, and didn't have a job outside of the home. Um, and so it was really interesting when I came to law school and this sounds very dramatic, but I have never felt so poor and I'm not, I'm so privileged. Um, but I've never felt so surrounded by wealth, like you were explaining. And I remember I applied to go on exchange. Um, and I got accepted to go on exchange to, um, Lucerne in Switzerland. And I felt so bad when I sent the email saying, actually, I can't go. Like, I'm so sorry for applying. Um, but I did the math and I don't know what I was thinking when I applied. I just thought I was like everybody else who could apply and go, but it wasn't that simple. Um, because I couldn't afford it. And I completely agree. It's, and, and the funniest part of this, Carly, I think the funniest part is that the three of us are having this conversation and the three of us come from similar backgrounds and you and Aaron too grew up in the same region, like St. Catharines, Niagara region. Um, but the funniest part is the three of us went to Windsor law, which isn't known for this type of culture. And so if we experience this at Windsor, I'm just trying to imagine what it would be like at a school in located in Toronto, or maybe like a school like UBC or something like that. I, I just can't imagine what that would feel like. Yeah. And like, obviously it's hard because one, you're never allowed to talk about class and law because people tell you they're not interested because it's a huge problem that I have found. And two, obviously there are intersections that intersect with class, right? Like we're all cisgendered white ladies that come from like middle-class backgrounds. So it's like, I am going to move through the world in a very different way than another person who might be, you know, more class, have more class privilege than me, but have other privileges that are like, they don't have the same privilege I have with other stuff. So like, obviously this is all you know, you can't remove class from discussion, just like you can't remove anything from a discussion. It's all interconnected. So like, I obviously don't want to lose, you know, like I hate to, 
it can be hard to talk about this stuff because I don't want to come off as like, oh, woe is me, the white lady who grew up middle class. Like, it's, you know, obviously this isn't, you know, that's not the point. The point is, is that like the law puts on purpose very serious barriers to entry that are couched in finance. And until those are even acknowledged, they're never going to be addressed, right? And I think, I mean, you guys know me enough. It's the thing that I hate the most is the pretending. So it's just like, if you want to have a financial barrier to entry, just say you have a financial barrier to entry so that someone can approach something eyes open, as opposed to being like, no, no, everyone's welcome at law school. We make it work for everyone when that's not really true. And so that's where, you know, that's where people lose me. It's just like, if you want to have these things in place, just be honest about the, the, the fact that they're in place. And then people can make their own decisions and, you know, adjust accordingly and do what they like. Like there are people in Ontario who go to law school out of province because it's so much cheaper than it is here. And we have the most law schools and the most lawyers and it costs the most amount of money. And there's still a huge access to justice problem. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think Aaron and I really try to sort of center our privilege in all of the discussions we have on the podcast, because, um, when we were starting this, we said, we need to make sure that, um, we're always kind of acknowledging where we're coming from because it's just one vantage point. And there are so many other vantage points and, um, we're so excited to like profile all of those voices. Um, but I completely agree with you. This is all about the barriers and the secrecy and also the level of taboo associated with talking about this. I think, I don't want to speak for Aaron, but I think I'd be lying if I said, um, I'm, if I, if I didn't say like, I'm definitely a little nervous to release this debt series. Um, it's, it's scary. And even when we've sent out some tweets about it, looking for lawyers to come on to talk about their experiences, I've said, Aaron, like, I'm a, li- I'm a little nervous to press send on this tweet. And so I hope that people listening just know that we're trying to really start a conversation about this and make, have these uncomfortable conversations to open up a much larger discussion and a much more transparent discussion um, in all realms, whether that's at law schools, when you're applying to law school, on law Twitter, um, amongst friend groups. Um, even when we think about um, talking about salary, that's a whole other piece of this. It's never discussed in the way it needs to be. Um, I recently started a new job and I felt so uncomfortable texting some of my closest friends to say, hi, what's your salary? Like, I need to negotiate a salary. What's your salary? What do you think is an appropriate salary? And I reached out to a couple people on LinkedIn who I respect and don't know and really said to them, like, this is the type of role I'm ex- I have accepted and I'm negotiating for. And I know what you do isn't identical, but it seems very similar to the role that I'm about to start. Um, is there any way you could give me a little guidance on salary? And I was shut down each time. And I recognize that people, it's uncomfortable and I wasn't expecting them to tell me their exact salary. Um, And I don't, I don't fault anybody for, for being private about it, but I just wish that we could be more open. And um, while I don't feel comfortable, maybe discussing my salary on the podcast, I would say that if anyone ever was in a situation where they were negotiating, um, I would be more than happy to, to talk about that because I think it's so important, especially for women, um, in the legal profession to advocate for themselves, um, going forward. 
Yeah, I was even, I remember asking someone about salary for first year associates positions. And I remember hearing, oh, blah, 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 makes this much money. But just keep in mind that he's a male. So yours would probably be lower. And that was just like the comment. And it's like, as if that's just like, yeah, just, you know, dock a couple thousand off that. And then you'll, you'll find what you would probably make. And it's just shocking how common that sort of comment is. No, the problem is, so the issue I find is that there's this weird thing in law where talking about salaries like gauche, right? Like you don't do it. Like, oh, we don't do that. And I think that comes from expressly in a straight line from the people who have historically been allowed entry into this profession are from a very specific race, class, and gender. And so I think a lot of the holdover of that attitude about salary comes from the origins of the profession. Like what Indigenous people weren't even allowed to be lawyers in this country until what, the 50s? So it's like, it's coming from a very antiquated place. And I understand, like, obviously everything Piper was saying about, like, if you personally feel uncomfortable personally publicly sharing what you make, that is one thing. But it's another thing that we don't have just, like, automatic anonymized salaries coming from big firms in a disclosure packet that people can see, right? Like, that's the type of thing that sheds light on a situation and gives people more leverage when they're negotiating. Hiding salary information hurts one direction right? Like it doesn't hurt the employer. It doesn't hurt anybody on the top level. Secrecy around salary only hurts. It hurts the more marginalized you are, the more it hurts hiding that information. And so that's the thing, you know, I'm just about giving people the information so that they can make their own decision. So it's like when you're not giving people the information that they need, they can't make informed decisions about where they want to work and how they want to work. And some of the places that are supposed to be very, you know, social justice oriented and all this sort of stuff, they don't post salary information, right? Because they just, in law, they just don't see class as an intersection at all. And it's outrageous to me that places that are supposed to be, you know, even progressive social justice places will hide salary information. Like to me, that's just something that, you know, it's 2021. That's unacceptable. Sorry, guys. I'm I'm guesting on your podcast, so I'll be a little more forward than you two (laughs) have to be. No, everything you're saying, I'm thinking to myself, I wish I could say this the way Carly is saying it, because she is taking everything I am thinking and saying it so eloquently. And we're so grateful. This is why um, Aaron and I, when we knew we were planning a debt series, said, okay, Carly, we we need Carly. And so thank, (laughs) thank you so much. But just building off the point you were making, I think not only does it, um, hurt people hiding, hiding salary information, keep people, um, out and in the dark, but it also continues obviously to protect those people that this, this secrecy has benefited. Um, and I think we've, we've all seen, seen that. Um, so this is definitely, um, a bigger conversation and a larger issue that we're not going to solve on this lovely Saturday afternoon. Um, But Carly, I guess one of the things that we were wondering is, I mean, Erin and I both know where you work, but what, um, how has debt impacted your career decisions, your articling decision? I know that you're finishing articling soon and you're looking for your next role. So how does debt sort of impact that trajectory? Yeah. So it's obviously huge. Like, you know, I sort of don't, 
I can't not be myself, right? So it is the blessing and the curse of my life. So I'm only really looking for places where I can sort of be the person that I am, which I think is fair to both the place and to me, right? Because like, I would hate to sort of misrepresent my politics or like the way that I think to get into this place. And then all of a sudden they've hired someone they don't expect, right? So I try to be very forthright about the way that I am. And the problem is, is that many of the places I would like to work can also be places that are terrible about disclosing salary information and even providing a living wage, right? So I always like to think that the law society or the law profession in Ontario is supposed to serve the public, right? And then it is often like the public facing jobs that are the lowest paid. And, you know, with salary information being hidden, it can be hard to discern that. But typically, uh, any sort of job that's going to be like social justice oriented tends to pay much, much less, which is what it is. And, you know, the problem is, is when you sort of apply to these places and then the places weaponize your desire to do that type of work as a way to pay you less money, which is something I 100% do not agree with. So it's one thing that says, you know, a public, a legal clinic isn't going to pay what Bay Street is. Of course it's not. I don't expect it to. I live in the reality that we all live in. I would never expect that to be the case. But if a legal clinic is saying like, oh, you should accept less than minimum wage, because if you don't, you don't actually care about the people the clinic serves. That's the territory where I become furious because then it's like, you're literally just weaponizing someone's care and passion about other people into bad working conditions. So all that to say, I have been especially picky in the jobs that I've been looking at and towards. Um, I really want to, you know, I want somewhere where I feel like I'm being valued and can do good work, but the salary, it has to be a consideration. And that's the problem. It's like my debt load is too high to work at a place where I'm not even making minimum wage. And there are many first and second year associate positions being advertised right now that do not even pay minimum wage in this province, which is ridiculous, right? It's like, if you want to have jobs that pay that little, then tuition needs to be substantially reduced. Or what? how is the system working? A system that's working on the unpaid labor of a never-ending pool of students is not a sustainable system. I completely agree. And I don't know, um, I haven't looked at those postings in a, in a couple minutes. But what I will say is I know in some regions, um, like and I'm sure it's lower other places, but I know in some regions, the starting salary for first-year associates is like $55,000. Oh, I've seen lower. I've seen much lower, okay. like thirty-five. Oh, okay. Wow. That's, that's mm-hmm. so fun. Yeah. So <laughs> that's just not really realistic when you're carrying this debt, but also when you have this education, regardless of if you carry the debt or not, to not be compensated fairly for your labor in any line of work is just unacceptable. And for some reason, the legal profession continues to get away with it. It's because the legal profession doesn't want to engage with work or class issues ever because they don't want to because it's gauche, Piper. <laughs> we don't talk about that. Well, I was also going to say it plays into kind of at the beginning too, right? So when you're, when you're signing on the dotted line, everything sounds fine when you're like, yeah, sure. I'll take on $135,000 of debt. That's fine. I'm going to be a lawyer. And everyone's like, yeah, don't worry. Lawyers make good money. And that's just like, kind of like what everyone says and what you hear and like, oh, don't worry. You'll be fine. You'll make it up later. And then you get out to the other side and you're like, wait a second, I have to 
make like $2,000 a month, just payments towards debt. And then you want me to live on the rest of this and you want me to be paid how much? Like it, it just doesn't work out. I think it's like a lie that we're sold. And I don't know who made the lie and manufactured the lie, but many people continue to tell it and sell it. And I think it's not just in the legal profession, it's about the legal profession. So since getting called to the bar prior to and even still actually with my full-time legal job, um, I've held different part-time jobs. So like in retail and at a fitness studio and my colleagues who are so lovely, but not from within the legal profession, when they find out that I'm quote, oh, you're a lawyer. It's always met with, oh, you're a lawyer. Like, what are you, what are you doing working here? And I mean, I work at the fitness studio because I, I love it. So that's, that's not what it's about, but, um, having some extra cash to pay my debt is definitely helpful. Um, but I guess my point being, it's like lawyers actually don't make that much money unless they a work on Bay street or B are years and years into practice, unless I'm totally like looking in the wrong place or, um, like don't know something that everybody else knows. I am so grateful for my new job and so grateful to be being compensated fairly. Um, but it's just the amount of job postings that I see, like you were discussing Carly, that are way, way, way below what someone with this debt load and this education should be getting paid. It's just so upsetting. I mean, they're low for the Employment Standards Act, which we are exempt from, right? So it's like, we don't fall under minimum standards legislation for certain things, not everything, obviously, like not human rights violations, but for the actual like minimum wage, public holiday pay, stuff like that, we're not included, right? So you can pay a lawyer $30,000 a year to work 65 hours a week at a practice, like that's perfectly acceptable. And it's like, that's crazy, right? And, you know, some lawyers make an exorbitant amount of money. And you know what, I don't even begrudge people that, you know, cause like a lot of the times I can come off as like this angry Marxist person, but it's like, that's really not who I am. It's just, I want the information to be available so that people can make informed choices about their own lives. And what makes me furious is that a lot of this information is purposefully hidden so that more and more people will just go to law school so that this never ending train of new students keeps coming out of the law so that we have bodies to fill for all these terrible jobs instead of actually trying to fix the system that we are currently stuck in. And especially us as women, what is it in Ontario? 50% of women will not practice within a decade in this province. And even though like 60, 60% of the women that go into 60% of the people that go into law school are women, it's ridiculous. And it's like a lot of this is because of this. It's because women get stuck in the low wage jobs, the bad jobs, the jobs with no benefits, the jobs that treat you like shit. And it's awful. Yeah. And then further down the line too, you, I mean, we could talk about this forever, but then you run into the problem if you're a uh, child rearing and don't have access to maternity leave, or I've heard so many people, like I'm a sole practitioner and I've heard so many sole practitioners pop out a baby and like a week later are back to work because their temporary like solution fell through or they just can't afford it. And, um, it's just like no surprise that women continue to fall out of the profession at that rate. 100%. You get, as I learned this week at a really cool thing, my work did mommy tracked. 
which is a which is a term I'd actually never heard of, but is actually makes perfect sense. Um, and I must say, like full disclosure, I'm not going to disclose where I work on the podcast, but where I work is actually very great. So I am very lucky that I am not personally experiencing a lot of this. But I also take the privilege that the job that I have landed gives me to talk about this stuff because, like, there are certainly people in my cohort year who are currently articling who are facing truly nightmarish positions and nightmare options after articling is over. And so I sort of think it's like my job as someone with a very stable position right now to be like, it is bad out there. You need to start helping the people for who, for who it is bad for. Cause like everyone should be, everyone should have gotten a job like mine, right? It should all be like that. They should all be good, stable, nice jobs. And it's like, you know, no job is perfect because it will never, it never will be, but every job should be at least fair, at least fair in the way you are treated, at least fair in the way you are paid. And that's really not the reality for a very large part of legal jobs. And it's just this big, huge circle, right? You know, you get this giant debt load, you want to do public interest work, you can't do public interest work because it doesn't pay any money. So you take a job in law that you don't like, and then you're working this job you hate for like an extended period of time to pay back debt. Like that's a terrible life. I don't know why we set it up this way. No, absolutely. And so on that note, how do you feel that this debt load has impacted your overall and or daily mental health? Um, well, obviously I'm real pissed about it because I get mad about it all the time. And it's like, I really didn't intend to become this like de facto law Twitter lady who just yells about student debt all the time. It sort of just happened. I think part of it is that like, I just went to law school older. So like I'm 32 right now. And it's like, I just honestly can't be bothered with people lying to my face about things. Like it makes me beyond furious. And two, it's just like, there are lots of people who are in more precarious situations than me who can't say anything because they are just really stuck. And it's like, if I just can't be bothered to say anything and they can't, then like, what does that make me? Right. So it's like, it affects my mental health in the sense that it incenses me all the time. But I am lucky and very, very privileged to be in a position where like overall in the grand scheme of things in the long run, I will be fine. I'm a capable person. I'll find work somewhere. Even if it's not the law, I will make it work. It's not a big deal to me personally. But like, again, because the law loves to do this, just because something is going to work out for me personally doesn't mean it still doesn't suck a lot. And so I find a lot in law, people will say, well, I did it. So you have to do it too. And it's like, that is terrible. I would much rather I did it. So I am going to change the system. So no one else ever has to do it again because it was terrible. So it's like, I think it's a fundamental attitudinal shift that needs to happen where we stop treating this profession like a series of intermittent hazings. And we actually try to train and build up the people that come after us. I could not agree more. Erin, I'll let you jump in. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I That was literally going to be our next question was what is one thing that you wish you could change about the legal profession? So, I mean, you've touched on it and, and I'm sure there's a lot longer of a list that you could go on because I know in... <laughs> <laughs> our web form that we sent you, you said, Piper and Aaron, there is not enough room in this text box. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, obviously there's a lot, right? So I'm a very firm believer in staying in my own lane. So obviously the very serious racism issue that the law has in this province is a giant, enormous issue, but I don't think that it's any of our places to be like taking the lead and 
taking the lead as in like steering the direction where this needs to go. I think we very much need to learn from the people who are in these groups who are being targeted by this behavior. What they say we should be doing is 100% what we should be doing. So I don't will not even comment because we just need to be good white allies and do what they say. Uh, but the class stuff I feel much more is in my wheelhouse. So I don't feel bad or feel weird about speaking out about it. So I think, one, and I know this will never happen because it just never will, but a girl can dream. I think that the fees need to be regulated again, like they were. And like the law school tuition needs to be regulated like it was before. So I believe the tuition was deregulated around 0304. And ever since then, I think it's just been an increase. You just see these problems getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because people are carrying increasingly high debt loads with every succeeding generation of lawyers. And I love people who have been in this profession a long time. I am not saying anything ageist. I am not saying they don't give value. I, my favorite person at my job was called before fees were deregulated. I don't think anyone who went to law school before fees were deregulated should be giving advice to current students about tuition or paying back that tuition or anything related to that because they went to law school in a different reality than we are currently going into. And they just don't understand, right? Like they never got a bill that's at $120,000 because tuition was significantly cheaper and subsidized back in the day. So I would say that if I had to pick one thing that I think would actually solve actual problems, I think it would be re-regulating law school tuition in this province and making it actually affordable for all people to go to law school who wanted to go. So like trying to fix the barriers to entry. Yeah. Another huge barrier to entry too is like you said, the law society fees. And I'm not kidding that I remember sitting in second year, the second semester of second year. And I overheard upper year students talking about how they had to pay $5,000 to article. And that was the first time, the first time I had ever heard of it. I just overheard this conversation and I was like, wait, so what I have to come up with that much money by next year, this time, like I had no idea that that was something that I should have been saving for planning for anything. And then, you know, okay, fine. They gave you this nice, like five month repayment plan. So all of articling, I paid like five ninety a month for my articling. And then it was probably a bit more than that, Erin, because I also was on that five-month repayment plan, and it was more like nine seventy. Oh yeah, I'm having amnesia. It was something like that. I just <laughs> a month that I had no idea was coming, and I was unbelievably grateful that my family helped me with that amount of money because it was money that I did not have saved, literally couldn't afford to pay, like would not have been able to pay that out of my articling salary. I had no money saved. I had spent it all on law school and that amount they just don't prepare you for. And it makes no sense to me why articling students have to bear this $5,000-ish cost to do our jobs that we have to do. I, it just, it's bonkers to me. Yeah, I found out the day it was due. So I'm like you guys too. I found out when the LSO sent me the bill for it. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. So now what I do is a matter of practice. So like I, where I am now was, was a job I got through OCI. So I've been talking to lots of students about like the OCI recruit because they did it later this year, whatever, whatever. I've had exposure to a lot of law students. The first thing I tell them, it's my number one thing. I tell them what licensing costs. I tell them what articling costs. I tell them what the bar costs. And I tell them what the position I am currently in made as a summer student and now. 
because like they need that information. And again, some people in this profession think it's like it goes against you if you ask that information during a job interview, even though it's like the only information people actually really want to know. And it's, you know, if you ask what you make, they're just like, oh, they must not really want to work here if they ask what you what it pays. It's like, no, I actually want to know if I'm going to be able to feed myself and pay my bills, actually. So like, I'm not trying to be like tacky. I'm just like actually asking you so I can know if I can live. Uh, but I made it a standard practice to just like give that information to any students in law school that I speak to, whether they want to hear it or not, I'm going to tell them just so that like, I never want to hear another student again who talked to me on anything and was like, well, I talked to you. Why didn't you tell me I was going to have to pay $5,000? Like I just, I make sure it's the first thing I tell them. Yeah. And I hate to break it, Carly, but um, there's more fees coming. I assume assume I'm just going to pay fees till I'm dead now. It never ends. I'm paying $356 to get administratively called by an email. So I assume it's just going to keep going from there. Yeah, I also, so when um, articling ended, my articling position ended two months earlier than it was supposed to end. So I was just kind of looking at, okay, I'm getting called. What are my fees going to be? What's going on? And I had to continuously call the LSO to figure this information out myself because I couldn't find it posted anywhere. But I found out like within 60 days of being called, I had to pay my fees for the rest of the year. And I was like, wait, excuse, like, where do you think I have this that $2,000, $1,000 sitting? Like, where, where do you think I just like pull this out of? Like, <laughs> eat less avocado toast, Aaron, and then you'll have it. I know, but it's just like, I mean, I would have tried my best to save on my already very tight budget before that to make sure that I would have had the money. I mean, luckily they eventually, I think because of COVID or so, I, for some reason, they eventually allowed us to have like a payment plan, even though you're usually not, not supposed to after a certain time. But it was just like, oh, okay, thanks for not telling me. I'll just figure this out now. (laughs) Yeah. And like, again, like going back to what I was saying before, it's very clear that many people who are structure tuition and fees in this province have never lived paycheck to paycheck. Because even the way um, I know with you guys, it was a little different because COVID was still ongoing. But with our cohort year, we're not being told a call date, right? It's just like we're getting an approximation within a one month window. So like if we're eligible to be called in May, we'll be called sometime from like May 21st to June 30th or whatever. Uh, So (laughs) obviously, if not knowing your call date affects your ability to gain employment, right? Because you need to know when you're licensed to practice to, you know, work. And so it's just very funny to me that it obviously didn't occur to anybody that like, oh, they're probably going to have to go a couple weeks without working because they won't know their call date. And if you can't work for a couple of weeks, that might affect their ability to live. Like, obviously, that wasn't a conversation that happened anywhere because it just doesn't occur to people, right? Like, I'm not saying anybody is up there, like, twiddling their thumbs in, like, their mansion being like, yes, I must attack the poor. Like, I don't think that's what's happening. I just don't think that people who are in charge of a lot of this stuff don't realize that if you are living on a super tight budget and you have to go on EI for a month, that might destroy you. Like that might ruin your credit. That might run up your credit cards. Cause like you don't get hundred percent of your salary when you're on EI. And it's like, I just don't think it occurs to them. Like, I think no one is doing this out of malice, but I think that class is not an intersection that is ever considered with any of this stuff. And it is very obvious when you get to these like transitional times because they're just like, whatever. I'm just like, go to Europe for three weeks, like it'll be fun and then come back and start work. And it's like, that's not the reality for a very large percentage of the people who are going through this process. 
And the fact that you are unaware of that worries me because it's like, how can we effectively serve the public if you don't understand the people that are doing that serving, right? And by not talking about it, it just continues to perpetuate the problem. And so I guess that leads us to our very last question. Um, As we've begun to talk about it today, um, we always try to end the podcast by asking people what's something new you've learned recently. Um, We love learning from each other and um, from the guests we have on. So if you wouldn't mind telling us something new that you've, you've learned. Yeah. So fun fact, I actually won a $5 Starbucks gift card this week for picking up the most uh, COVID hobbies during the quarantine period. So I'm very proud. Uh, I bought, I never danced as a kid ever. So I bought tap shoes when quarantine started and I do like my little tap videos off YouTube. I grow tomatoes in my basement. I obviously started my podcast Legal Listening, which is where I'm currently recording from my uh, recording closet, which we installed. I, yeah, I pick up hobbies like crazy. I started doing bar. I don't know. I like doing things with my hands. I bake a lot. I cook a lot. Anything. I collect hobbies. Any hobby, I'll probably try it. Um, yeah, we're really disappointed that this couldn't be in person. One, because we <laughs> adore you um, and would always love to know you more. But two, Carly's baking for anyone who is experienced it and been fortunate enough to taste the fruits of Carly's labor just doesn't like it's so amazing and just Carly posts pictures of it sometimes but I've never seen someone bake in the quantity that Carly bakes unless they're like um an actual bakery and so going to winter law and experiencing some of Carly's baking was a real treat um and Carly and I actually first met I think through Windsor Law's vagina monologues which is a philanthropic production um that raises money for the local sexual assault crisis center and Carly and I both performed in it and Carly baked a bit for that and it's just you know Carly's very good at a lot of things and so we're so grateful that she took time today to speak with us and share her weekend with us um you can keep up with Carly on Twitter or by tuning into legal listening they recently hit 10 thousand downloads in oh, 15,000 downloads oh my goodness <laughs> for us to keep up with yeah, in less than a year when did you guys start? yeah we start we launched the podcast officially on august the 24th we won a clobby and now we're at 16,250 downloads before i started talking so to you guys if you somehow have been not in the loop with legal listening um you can find them on anywhere podcasts are found. Um, We're gonna link all that good stuff for you in the episode notes. Um, To stay up to date with our podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Off The Tracks Podcast and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Thanks. Thanks.